Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Ludmers. Declaration of Interdependence by the David Suzuki Foundation, which can be found at www.davidsuzuki.org, and Suzuki is spelled S-U-Z, or as we say in the U.S., Z-U-K-I.org. And this is what they have on their website, and we would love to read it for you today for your consideration. It was written in 1992 for the U.N. Earth Summit in Rio. This we know. We are the earth through the plants and the animals that nourish us. We are the rains and the oceans that flow through our veins. We are the breath of the forests of the land and the plants of the sea. We are human animals related to all other life as descendants of the firstborn cell. We share with these kin a common history written in our genes. We share a common present filled with uncertainty, and we share a common future as yet untold. We humans are but one of 30 million species weaving the thin layer of life enveloping the world. The stability of communities of living things depends upon this diversity. Linked in that web, we are all interconnected, using, cleansing, sharing, and replenishing the fundamental elements of life. Our home, planet Earth, is finite. All life shares its resources and the energy from the sun, and therefore has limits to growth. For the first time, we have touched those limits. When we compromise the air, the water, the soil, and the variety of life, we steal from the endless future to serve the fleeting present. This we believe. Humans have become so numerous and our tools so powerful that we have driven fellow creatures to extinction, dammed the great rivers, torn down ancient forests, poisoned the earth, rain, and wind, and ripped holes in the sky. Our science has brought pain as well as joy. Our comfort is paid for by the suffering of millions. We are learning from our mistakes. We are mourning our vanished kin, and we now build a new politics of hope. We respect and uphold the absolute need for clean air, water, and soil. We see that economic activities that benefit the few while shrinking the inheritance of many are wrong. And since environmental degradation erodes biological capital forever, full ecological and social cost must enter all equations of development. We are one brief generation in the long march of time. The future is not ours to erase. So where knowledge is limited, we will remember all those who will walk after us and err on the side of caution. This we resolve. All this that we know and believe must now become the foundation of the way we live. 
at this turning point in our relationship with Earth, we work for an evolution from dominance to partnership, from fragmentation to connection, from insecurity to interdependence. Welcome everyone today to our round table. We're here once again in Studio C, and I'm joined by our Firefly Willows co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello. John Carousella. Hi there. And Deb Carousella. Good morning. And we started off this round table with a declaration of interdependence that was put out by the David Suzuki Foundation. And that's because our topic today is independence versus interdependence. And what we think that the difference in definition of that is and how we may exhibit that in the world today, one or the other, and whether we think that we need to be cultivating or striving for one or the other, or if they can coexist equally and successfully versus perhaps needing to change our perception of what each of those means and not feel resistance to one or the other because we think that somehow one negates or takes away from the other. So the first thing that I might ask us to consider is what would you say is your definition of independence? And then what would you say that your definition of interdependence might be? So if I were to take a stab at at independence, I would tend to equate that with one of two things, either the very practical matter of my personal sustainability, my ability to, to operate in the world with, within the parameters of comfort that I like. You know, I can feed myself, I can drive the car I want, I, can, I have shelter and so on and so forth as, as a kind of sense of independence. Or uh, the other way is, is from the perspective of personal sovereignty, that I am complete enough in myself that I can engage the world with confidence that I'm here and present and accounted for and taking action in the way that I feel is appropriate for me. If I feel independent in that way of personal sovereignty, I don't feel like a victim. When I think of interdependence, the first thing that comes to me, to mind for me is empathy. It's a way of seeing everything else in the world through the experience of those other things, knowing that those other things are inextricably part of my experience and therefore part of my reality and therefore part of who I am. So I'm interdependent upon all of the all of the stimuli and all of the things that create that stimuli because it is all that stimulation that creates my reality. And the more emp- the more empathy I can feel, the more empathy I can experience with all of those things, the more wholly I can understand my own experience. When I was was listening to Hi C talk about independence and interdependence, the energy that came into me was freedom. So for me, when I think about independence, I'm thinking about freedom. And then the next place that I land it was, depending on the degree to which you're free and independent, has an impact at the quality on the quality of your interdependence. So if there's a bunch of people who are masked and not free, they are not really able to bring a high-quality interdependence to the table, as opposed to people who are free and unmasked. I like that. That's good. So that's, that's where I went. And I, more or less, what Mildred just said is where I went, if, and but I went from the point of view where Heisey asked, can they reside together, or do they exclude one another? Can you be independent 
and interdependent? Or can you only be one or the other? I would hope that we can be both mutually exclusive because I also went to the independent is freedom. It's the ability to make my own choices, be within my own space, not dependent upon anyone else to solve my problems, meet my needs, make me happy. And I like that. I enjoy that. I find that a very uh, a strong need in myself. But I also realize that meeting my own needs, making my own happiness cannot be at the expense of someone else or something else. And so in that regard, I am never totally disconnected from all that is around me. Um, the, the My wants, my needs, my desires are not without impact on the beings, the world, the relationships around me. So all of that always has to be taken into consideration as I'm making my personal choices, as I'm living my personal life and, and exploring my personal freedoms. So yes, I want that. I want both. But I realize that they, so they aren't mutually exclusive. They have to work together. And I don't feel that I want to be on one end or the other. I don't want to be totally interdependent in every one, but I don't want to be totally independent of all to the detriment of something either. What would be your concern if you feel you are totally interdependent? I have a real problem with when I feel that I am being obliged by someone else's need, by someone else's expectation, even if it's something that hasn't actually come from them, it's something that I've interpreted from them. I find that I react poorly to that. I bristle. I, I don't want to be trapped by a sense of being obligated to meet someone else's need unless I have given permission. That is where the inter being completely interdependent upon everyone and everything makes me feel that I that there's a sense that something I have to give something up. It creates a, a vulnerability, a vulnerability to the loss of the loss of your free agency. Yes. While you were talking, Debbie, I was thinking about a story I read. There was a group of grade six children in the U.S., and they were asked to draw a picture of their environment, a picture of themselves and their environment. And then there was another class, and they were of uh, Native American children, same age, and they were also tasked with the same opportunity, to paint a picture of themselves in the environment. And let's say the mainstream children, mm -hmm. the U.S. children, and this could apply to Canada or any country, I'm sure, drew a picture of their environment, the trees, the skies, the birds, the water, but their body was out of proportion with the scale of the different trees and waters and birds. Mm -hmm. Their body was much, much larger, much, much, much larger. And if we would go to the second class that were asked to draw themselves in the context of their environment, everything was in proportion. So the first one illustrates to me an example of independence out of proportion, mm -hmm. out of balance with the environment, whereas the second example is independence interconnected. At, at the right scale. At right. the right scale. So to me, it's kind of a scale question a little mm. bit too. I think the word independence has gotten bastardized because it's come to mean freedom and liberty. But I think the way that people interpret that now is a sense of, 
I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, and I shouldn't have to get anybody's permission, nor should I have to do it in any way other than the way that I want to, and I shouldn't have to worry about anyone or anything else in the process. I don't think that that's true independence, but I also think that there's no way for us to not be interdependent. You know, if we listen to, for example, the declaration that was that started off this segment, they certainly mention things about the sky and the plants and the earth and all of that. So we're all part of an ecosystem that can't somehow be separated from us as if all of this other ecosystem is for us to use without us having any sort of impact. And when Deb was talking about not wanting to be interdependent on others, if we actually look at our lives, I would say we're more interdependent now even than we might have been hundreds or thousands of years ago. I agree. I would ask, are you creating your own fuel for your car? Are you growing your own food? Are you pulling water up for yourself from a well that's on your land? And so if the answer to those kind of things is no, it means we're extremely interdependent on everyone else. And if independence is I can do what I want when I want, all of the people that are growing and picking the food and shipping the food decide, you know, I don't feel like doing that today. That's going to have a huge impact. And then we see the interdependence. There was recently a huge storm in Washington, D.C., and all of a sudden, there's no electricity. All of the grocery stores are wiped out and clean, so there's no fresh anything for anyone to get. So whatever you have in your house, you kind of have to deal with till the electricity comes back. There's no gas at the gas stations. And we're suddenly starkly reminded of just how interdependent we actually are in our society rather than being independent. And I think interdependence is something that is starting to make a comeback, if you will, because we hear more and more about community whether it's with food, you know, buying local or creating community co-ops or different kinds of arrangements within a community like a community garden where everyone is sharing both in the work as well as in what comes from that garden and having access to it rather than having to rely on someplace else for people that they never see to grow this, to bring it to them. But then, of course, they don't know how it's been grown, what is in it, etc. And so I think that if we really looked at it, we're much less a society of what we tend to think of as independence and much more a society of interdependence, but we don't seem to acknowledge nor honor that fact. And we live far more, at least in a mindset, independently, which then creates conflict and problem and challenge within the true interdependence that we're a part of in our society. At the end of the day, we're no less dependent now than we were when we were struggling uh, with stone tools or cultivate for the first time. We're still dependent on the planet. We're still dependent on what bounty the planet pr produces for us. That What's changed is that we have abstracted ourselves away from that process. So we have the illusion of independence. We have systems that funnel those resources to us, but we're not independent of those systems, as you pointed out, like in D.C. with the power outage. All of those systems, we are dependent upon those systems. What do those systems do? Those systems bring us the bounty of the planet. So without the bounty of the planet, we, we don't function. So we're, we're no less dependent now than we were before. We, what we've done is we've made ourselves dependent upon and interdependent with a whole bunch of systems 
So instead of being interdependent with a community, we're interdependent with a bunch of mechanical systems, architected systems that don't necessarily have a soul. What I see is, is a delusion of independence, an illusion of independence, because we have lost our empathic connection to the things that sustain us, mm-hmm. because they're machines, they're systems, they're impersonal, they're government, they're corporations, they're highways and cars, and how can we have any empathy with the resources that sustain us when we have no we have no connection to it? As much as we champion independence, I think that we have actually created systems where we have sacrificed and lost our independence. Because when, when a system goes down, so let's say that a storm comes, a system goes down, now there's nothing at the grocery store, we suddenly panic wondering where are we going to get food from, rather than having that innate sense of, I can independently grow my own food. And we used to know how to do that, and in some ways without having to think about it because it was just what we did. Right. Now, we don't even necessarily have the knowledge of how to do that let alone have an innate sense of let me go to doing that. You know, the first thing that people think is, oh, I don't know when electricity is going to be back on, so I better start looking at planting or or growing or cultivating some things that I'm growing myself. We just start panicking about when are they going to get the electricity back on so that there will be food on the shelves of the store for me to have. So how how would we, I guess in the collective, we become more aware well, the whole locavore thing, like buying local, eating local, that's what I would say is a, is a great place to start. I would encourage people to start small because start by having just your own small herb garden uh, because yeah. suddenly you realize I don't have to go to the store to suddenly get that fresh rosemary I need for this meal I'm making. And maybe I find that I'm actually saving money because I'm spending less at the grocery store on a regular basis because I'm not buying all of these extra herbs that I normally would use because all I have to do is walk over here and snip them from a pot or from my garden or something like that. And it doesn't have to be growing things. It might be sitting down. There was a great concept I saw about gift circles where a a neighborhood community comes together every week and they go around and say, this is what I received in the last week. This is what I need. And it may be something like I need a ride to the airport on Tuesday or I'm going to paint my bedroom on Thursday and could use some help with that or I need a ladder and then you go around and people who have those things to offer will then say oh I can come and help you on Thursday or I could take you to the airport on Tuesday but what you start to find is in return you're doing something else so you have something to offer which may be different but you're able to offer it and then you're also getting something that you need back which is that interdependence that we have so there's already an inherent interdependence that I think we've both lost sight of but we can start to connect back to through both simple acts like starting because interdependence with the plants by starting to grow things for ourselves and then expanding it out if you you know to start doing that either on a neighborhood level a community level and that kind of thing i think that with the interdependence when you start engaging in this type of activity it's going to bring a sense of fulfillment and then you start engaging in interdependence activities like kai C was mentioning I would imagine it's going to give you all kinds of different sensations and feelings, and 99.9% of them are going to be positive. And for me, that's where the, the power of interdependence is, is, is going to grow. So I'd like to thank everyone for engaging in this conversation today. Hopefully it has inspired those listening to at least give some thought 
as to what independence and interdependence mean for them and how they might see themselves in an interdependent world rather than feeling so independent that what they want, what they do has no effect on others, nor does what happens outside of them have any effect on themselves. And to finish this segment, I'd like to finish it the same way that we started, by reading another Declaration of Interdependence, this one written by T. Thorne Coyle. So we will finish with that. So thank you very much to everyone for being here. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. A Declaration of Interdependence by T. Thorne Coyle. Information about T. Thorne Coyle can be found at www.thorncoyle.com, thorncoyle.com. We, in order to create a more perfect union, declare our strength and beauty as individuals and our love and compassion for the whole. We acknowledge that the turtle and the sparrow, the carrot and the kale, the sandy ocean and distant stars are all our family. We pledge to love one another to the best of our abilities. We will cease to be at constant war and will learn to solve our disagreements amongst individuals and in small communities, not allowing them to spill over, affecting masses of beings. We will not pour toxins into the oceans, earth, and sky. We will cherish one another. We, in order to create a more perfect union, do claim our interdependence with every particle that exists. We pledge to dance on a regular basis and to sing. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. My revolutionary guest this month is Jenny Wilde, a high priestess and artist, a mother of the new time and of her two progeny, a diviner and a dreamer with her head firmly planted among the stars. Raised in a free-form pagan hippie community in Northern California, Jenny's ideologies are grounded in Zen Buddhism and reverence for the earth. Growing up as she did among hippies, wild witches, artists, and creative types has given Jenny a wide variety of perspectives and experiences. Jenny is also an ordained high priestess in Kaya Coven and a trained artist. 
She's currently working on art for social change in addition to her regular practices of cooking as a devotional act and contemplating the nature of the universe. Her current project is Love Notes to the World, a collaborative art piece to weave the world together with yarn and loving intentions. You can find out more and see more of her work at www.lovenotestotheworld.com and on Facebook at Love Notes to the World. So please join me in welcoming to this month's revolution, high priestess, an artist, and mother of the new time, Jenny Wilde. And welcome, Jenny Wilde. Thank you so much for joining me here on Revolution today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And I think, first of all, we heard a little bit about you in the intro, but maybe you can just give us a a little bit of background as to who is Jenny Wilde and where does she come from? (laughs) Well, that's a convoluted story, but um, I am a California native and I have lived all up and down the coast um, as far as Washington and down to Southern California. Um, I was raised by my mom in a very freeform hippie environment. And uh, my mom was an artist and I grew up around the arts and uh, you know, I have, I have multiple things that I love to do. Creating art is one of those things. It's just sort of something I keep doing no matter what. And then I also am a manager for a metaphysical store called the Sacred Well. And I am an herbal medicine maker. And I'm not sure what else to say. Well, then, if you think back, how would you say that art found you? Oh, well, I mean, it found me through my mom, for sure. She introduced me to things at a very early age. It was sort of steeped in my environment. Um, but also, I think the the earliest way that art found me was just in the way of seeing things in the world. I My mom taught me to really look deeply into things and examine them and find the beauty in everyday objects and situations. And from there, everything becomes art in a way. And are there particular styles or mediums that you have been drawn to working in? Uh, Yes, well, I love the Art Nouveau style. Um, I have been very heavily influenced by uh, Japanese woodcut images and the sort of early graphic designs of Toulouse-Lautrec and that sort of thing in the early days of poster printing. Um, I'm a fan of sort of stylized sinuous lines and that sort of thing um and also the um the baroque period of art and um and it's sort of irregular uh irregular you know dynamic balance rather than uh, exact um symmetry and also so that sort of irregularly flowing composition that guides the eye around um those sorts of things influence my work a lot. And, and as far as materials, I have worked with a lot of materials, wood and metal and glass, but my current passion is probably textiles. I, I really enjoy 
working with fiber arts in a lot of different mediums. Um, I like to make my own felt and I make maps out of felt and embroidery and that sort of thing. And I also do a lot with crochet. So I'm sure that perhaps this idea has evolved over time for you. And if you want to think about if there's any contrast between when you were younger versus today, um, what do you think the purpose of art is? If you want, you could talk about that in two different ways. What, what is the purpose of art in our personal lives? And what is the purpose of art in society? Mm, okay. Yeah, well, you know, the purpose of art in our personal lives, I mean, I think I think that art is really essential to our emotional and mental well-being, honestly. Um, even, if, even if you're someone who doesn't feel like you are a talented artist or skillful artist, um, you never have any intention of displaying your work or anything, it, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't still do it if you want to. I, I feel that there are so many sort of um, restrictions against that expression of creativity, of personal creativity. We, we have so many judgments about ourselves in that way. And, you know, we, it isn't taught in schools very much anymore. I mean, hardly at all. It's, it's either, you know, private schools maybe or parent volunteers, which I have also done in public schools, volunteered as an art docent. But it, it's not something that is part of a curriculum anymore. And, um, and of course, now funding is cut to the NEA, so it's really not considered important in our society as, you know, at large. But I think it's essential for expressing things that can't be expressed with words. I mean, I think music also does this very well. And I love to sing, although I'm not, I don't play an instrument. So, um, you know, a more visual medium is my personal choice for, and, but I think that all of those things are really essential uh, for finding ways of working through ideas that we may be struggling with or that we want to celebrate, working through emotional states, um, expressing love and joy and grief and pain and all of those things. I think that art touches a place that other means of expression don't. And so I think that for our own well-being, art is essential, looking at it and creating it or listening to it. Um, so, I mean, I, before I ever would consider putting something on display in front of anyone, I still felt compelled to make things. It took me a long time to actually consider myself an artist. I put a lot of judgments on my work, and I was like, well, I'm a maker. I'm a craftsperson. I'm not an artist. Um, and then I went to art school and got a fancy piece of paper and felt somehow that that justified me calling myself an artist. But really, I think that's silly. I don't, don't do, do what I say, not what I did. <laughs> um, so that's, I think that it's very important personally for all of us to see beyond the mundane. And then as far as socially or in the, in the larger context, in the community and in the world, I think art is a, an incredible tool for social change, I think that, again, because it can touch things that words can't, it gets beyond our sort of rational mind in a certain way to make an emotional connection or a spiritual connection even, that that deep connection is something that can move beyond all the words we might share. And I think that 
sometimes, especially for illustrating difficult concepts uh, to convey, I think that artists have a responsibility to help try to illuminate some issues that we as a society are struggling with to, to, uh, to share broader perspectives and to bring awareness to things that other people might have no experience with um, and to help us understand each other. I think it's essential more than ever that we focus on that. Um, how would you how would you encourage someone to be willing to just try doing whatever kind of art they may feel called to if they are struggling to get past self-doubt or self-judgment around that? Well, um, that that's a tough one. Getting past self-doubt and self-judgment is um, – <laughs> It's a big obstacle, and it's certainly one that I still contend with regularly. Um, but, the, you know, if it's any comfort or if it makes it any easier, I would say that, you know, you are not under any obligation to show what you do to anybody. If you're worried about anybody else seeing it and it not meeting a standard, first of all, if you make it only for yourself, then it only has to please you. And um, so... You know, sometimes you don't even have to tell anybody about it. You could just do it in the privacy of your own home, and then if you don't like it, you can throw it away. And and I think one of the things to remember, too, is that even famous artists, uh, you know, throughout history and contemporary artists as well, everything that they make isn't a masterpiece. Some of the most successful artists throughout history have made so many pieces. It's about doing the work. Do the work regularly. Like if you make a painting every day or work on a paint, you know, even one a month, then maybe one of those paintings that you produced in a year will be great and the rest won't be. Or they'll maybe be mediocre. Some of them will be terrible and you paint over them or you throw them away or whatever. The way that great artists become great is by doing and they don't produce all great works. We just only see the ones that they liked or that were successful. We don't see the ones that were rejected, but they still existed. So just remember that the secret to success in the arts is just doing it a lot. And the more you have, the greater your chances of having something come out successfully. Well, and I would think that that theme of just doing the work is something that could be applied to life more broadly. Um, I know in your intro, for example, we heard that you're a high priestess in the Mothers of the New Time. Yes. Uh, and so, which applies, you know, to some of the spiritual work that you do and magical work and that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so, where do you think there is an intersection between art and magic or art and spirituality especially thinking about that idea of doing the work and why that's important and what benefits that brings and where that takes us to if we're willing to do the work. Oh, yes. Well, you know, um, on some level, I mean, I'm a, I'm a high priestess, and so that's sort of the public face of the work that I do as a magic worker. In, I also call myself a witch, which is just sort of who I am and how I exist in the phenomenal world. I, I see magic, I experience magic in the world around me, which I don't feel is in conflict with science, actually. I've, I'm very much into science as well. I think science holds a lot of magic, actually. But um, for me, there's 
so everything that I make when I'm, you know, when I'm making art or when I'm making medicine also, actually, um, to me, it's all kind of a spell. I am creating a spell for healing or creating something that is going to magnify an intention or convey an idea that I feel is important, even if it's just important for me to express, you know, that is, uh, there is definitely, that's part of my work as a, as a witch, as someone who engages with magic in my life. So there's that aspect. And then when I create something to be used in a ritual or when I create something that I want to help uh, foster positive growth or change in the world, I feel that that is, it's very much inspired by my work as a priestess and the, the need that I see in the community for healing and support and faith. I mean, not even in any particular deity, but just faith that we can overcome the challenges in our lives. Um, I feel that as a priestess, that's a big part of my role is to encourage and support others to see the sacred in the everyday. And so my work as an artist is very much informed by that uh, sort of elevating and, and elucidating the sacred in the everyday. And, um, and my project, Love Notes to the World, is also a big spell to sort of help bring the world together uh, because I feel that that's something that we really need. And I actually started this project um, uh, over a year ago and it has, you know, a lot of things happened in my life in the last year and it kind of didn't go as fast as I wanted it to. But I, I feel that it is something that is especially relevant now. I feel that the need hasn't decreased. It has only increased for this magic to bring people together um, so, and, you know, it's funny because people used to make spiritually, uh, themed work a lot. Uh, you know, it was, it was primarily Christian or Catholic. There was a lot of devotional art in churches. And I mean, some of it is really extraordinarily beautiful. Um, and so, but then, um, we moved away from that. And there was also, you know, when people made art about Greeks and that sort of thing in the Renaissance, there was that rediscovery of the Greek, uh, art and Roman art. And so, those myths were explored in art, but now we've moved to being such a secular society in regards to art. I think there was a pushback against the sort of religious art, which was often controlled by the church or by the patrons, uh, which is true. You know, that's true. But I think we've sort of swung so far back that it, that art has become, I mean, in what I call the capital A art world, it's become so secular that anything that has a spiritual basis is really poo-pooed. It's looked down upon as being somehow low, but I don't agree at all. I think that we, that art, I mean, it can be secular or it can be spiritual. Art isn't, it doesn't belong to either of those areas. It is a means of expression and it belongs to everybody. So how would you differentiate or make a distinction between art with a capital A versus art with a little a? Oh, well, when I was in art school, I, I mean, I have lots of opinions about the art world. Um, as a woman in art school, I encountered a lot of misogyny and a lot of uh, sort of dismissal and degrading attitudes or, or demeaning attitudes about um, there was a lot of 
idea of it being low and the elevation of conceptual art as well as some sort of godhead which i think is hilarious actually um the the idea in fact i even made a protest piece about it i crocheted a book um called merely decorative that had clips of it had like excerpts from essays that different conceptual artists had written about how ornamentation and and sort of crafty things were low forms of art and that high art was actually just purely conceptual which i don't agree with um so it's um i think it's really important to be able to you know, work in whatever medium you want. I've actually seen the art world swing back somewhat toward the appreciation of craft again, but the, the capital A art world is that game of playing with concept over, over craftsmanship and the idea that, the notion that the idea of what you are doing is more important than the actual execution. Um, and that, that, and it's really dominated by men, primarily white men. And um, women are still struggling as in many areas of the of life still struggling to be seen as valid or relevant so that's that's the art world that i inhabit lowercase a <laughs> and, and do you also think that some of these challenges uh, ha also came about the more that art became something of a commerce rather than simply art yeah i do think that that is true i mean um it was and you know i don't know how much you want to know about the history of that because maybe this isn't the right forum but i do think that it is important that artists can get recognition and and be paid for their work um this is a relatively new thing that outside of patronage you know which where your work is really dictated by your patron a lot um that doesn't really patrons don't really exist per se anymore but it was actually jackson pollock's work after his death his widow um made made created the art market and now that there is an art market there yeah stuff that that's become this big this big aspect of what is considered real art and you know how much it sells for so yes it's become so much more about marketing in that way but it's also just this network of it's very cronyistic you know there's lots it's just kind of everybody knows each other and they promote each other and it's hard to break into and um and it's it's very much an old boy network well yeah and i was thinking more not that artists shouldn't be paid you know and that kind of thing but more the idea of if it's important art or if it's valuable art or if it's worthy art, then it should sell for millions of dollars. And if right. somebody isn't able to price or to sell something in, in those realms that somehow it's dismissed. Right. Right. Well, and I think that's true. And I, I think that it's an interesting um, dichotomy there because I think that often the work that, takes the longest and is the most sort of personally labor intensive is valued less because it's crafty often uh, rather than the idea, you know, the concept, which might, you know, sell for more. Uh, there was um, a piece of art and I'm totally blanking on the artist's name now, but he made this diamond encrusted skull. Uh, this was, you know, several years ago. And it was the, 
it was a piece of art that sold for the most of any piece of art that had ever been made. And now I'm sure that at least part of that is because of all the diamonds on it. I mean, there is that value in the object, but also, I mean, it wasn't an original idea. It was a diamond encrusted skull and it was very flashy and it sold for, you know, over a million dollars or something. And, you know, I, I'm the artist himself, I doubt actually probably even did that. Like he probably had his, his uh, apprentices or what have you gluing all those diamonds onto that, you know, resin skull or whatever the base was made of. And, and so it was given a value that exceeds its artistic merit. In my opinion, Um, artistic merit has nothing to do with market value, unfortunately. And I think that was um, Hearst, not Julius, Damien Hearst. Damien Hearst. Right. Yes. And I mean, I like skulls, but you know, still. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um so and and i think and something that you had said uh, a couple of minutes ago too when you were talking about science and magic and that kind of thing i think that especially the work that you do with mm-hmm. um i think that's the best illustration of where science and magic can be seen in the exact same thing Right, Because science can show us why plants may do certain things for us on a medicinal level, mm-hmm. but it's also almost like magic the way that they do it when you think about, wait, I just eat that leaf and suddenly it cures this. <laughs> right, right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, was, was, there, was there a connection between your interest in art and your calling towards um, the apothecary? of the plant world um uh, or or was that just a a separate interest that developed and and have you found anything that kind of bridges or merges those things together for you in your self or in your life yeah well you know i would say that it it was kind of a an independent co-arising i don't know that either i mean i i guess in some ways being taught to look at you know the flowers very look at how they're constructed and what have you when I was a little kid but informed both my interest in art and my interest in the botanical world um so you know I guess they sort of came from similar roots but um as far as one informing the other I mean that definitely happens now I think that a lot of the work I do with textiles is very much an overlap of those things in a a lot of ways because uh, I love working with natural dyes. Uh, So there's that apothecary aspect of making my dye bath and working with different plants to see what kind of colors they produce and also how to get those colors to stay. And, um, you know, different fibers are made of different materials, some of them plants, some of them animal, like wool, of course. And um, so I, I would say there's definitely overlap. I also working with uh, botanical illustrations and doing embroidery. I have a project, which I won't go too much into because it's kind of a, I, I don't want to give it away before I'm done, before I have it ready to release. But working with both plant dyes and embroidered images of botanical illustrations, you know, put it together into a piece of art like that that stuff is very much overlapping for me exploring the role of plants as mediators of sacred and transcendent experiences and then making art about that that's something that is a big interest of mine Uh, well i would assume also that there's a huge aspect of the healing work that you can do 
with plants and that kind of thing. And I think art does healing on one level. Mm -hmm. Plants, you know, certainly can be used for healing on another level. And where I would see that starting to merge is in the project that you mentioned a little while ago, your Love Notes to the World project. Right. Um, So, well, why don't we just start with what was the the catalyst or the inspiration for this project and maybe also describe a little bit about actually is and entails. Okay, sure. Yeah, well, the catalyst was um, a couple of years ago, you know, I was on Facebook and I... I'm not friends with people on Facebook that I don't actually know. So a lot of the time, the things that come through my feed are things that are already sort of going to resonate with me because it's people that I know. And so we tend to, my friends and I tend to think similarly about things. That's why we're friends. But I found that it was really hard to, um, I'd see so many like news articles that were so depressing and so discouraging and sort of, you know, in a certain way elevated all of the worst components of humanity, all of the most base instincts and terrible acts. And, um, and, you know, and I was also sharing those things because I would be getting all outraged about something and I'd share a thing and be like, Oh, you know, look at this. This is terrible. We need to be aware of that. And and I do think that it's still true that we need to be aware. I, I definitely think that's true. But I also thought, you know, there were also a few articles, but it was really hard to find articles about people doing good things. And it occurred to me that, you know, I, when I talk to people on a more one-on-one basis, I find out that, you know, most of them are not doing these terrible things that, that the really terrible things, I mean, that, that are being done by the smaller proportion of the population, but it's a very loud, very in your face and often powerful portion of the population. But that I, I had this feeling that really, if if, um, I could just connect with more people who cared instead of the people that didn't care, the people that don't care seem to be totally happy to just you know, be as loud and in your face as they want to be. Whereas the people who are more reasonable and kind and caring tend to retreat from that forum, but that doesn't mean they're not out there. I think that we tend to, those of us who actually care tend to feel overwhelmed and so pull back and don't engage in that public way. But that if we could just actually harness that collective energy of the people that are engaged and caring, that we would see that, there are far more of us than the people that are trying to destroy things, but we are so divided and so separate and we feel so overwhelmed and isolated that we, we lose our power because we don't have a way of sort of, you know, collaborating with each other to create a better reality. So my idea was to create a project to try to draw that energy, um, together and to I I decided I would crochet a a giant globe um, and I mean like eight feet in in diameter and my goal my hope was to get the yarn all donated I mean I have lots of yarn and you know I I'm contributing some but the idea was that I wanted people all over the world ideally um, that still hasn't totally happened I've gotten some yarn from other countries but I'd really love for this to have a greater reach and really get yarn from all over the world, from people who believe that love is more important 
than than hate and destruction, because I think that there really are more of us. So if I could get those contributions, their you know physical contributions of yarn, but also energetic contributions, and then take all of those pieces of yarn from all over the world and all these different people who share a similar goal and I mean weave figuratively technically crochet but weave that together into this globe to reflect you know what the people that really do that are all around and then also to get people to send me love notes their wishes or intentions for the world or the things that they appreciate about the world and stuff the globe with it. And then I want to take it places. I want to have it be public so that people can see, have a, because I think visual reminders are really important. You know, it's, we need to be able to see something for it to impact us pretty deeply, you know, more directly. We, we can know a thing intellectually and not have it really sink into our psyche or our heart. Um, it feels too abstract. We need to make it tangible and make it real. So I wanted to take the energy and create this collaborative love note and, and then also show it to people and take it. I mean, ideally I'd love to travel all around the world with it to show, look what we can create together. And would you envision as it travels around the world, people being able to continue to add love notes to it? Or is it something, would they be able to read the love notes that are already part of it? Well, they could. What I was hoping to do was to make a sort of compendium of all the love notes, because I do want them to be in the globe. But I figured out the engineering of how I could make it collapsible for transport, transport since it is a soft thing. Uh, so, you know, but that it would pop up and be globe shaped and, you know, it would need to be like suspended maybe from a tree branch or something in a park, that kind of thing. Um, and then, uh, I would have to take the notes in and out. Um, so, but it, you know, and so people certainly could, uh, read them. My goal was, my desire was definitely to have people still contribute, continue to contribute. And, you know, ultimately I had a vision of once I've finished the creation of the project, and worked out all of the the technical details of how to make it, you know, like how to, what the counts are for how many stitches in a row and what have you, um, to make that pattern freely available for anybody anywhere to make their own. And I mean, and if I had more notes or more yarn than would fit or make one, then I, my goal was, my intention was to make more, just make as many as I get yarn and notes for and and to share the idea of the project and the plans for the project with whomever might want them to be able to create it and spread it as far as it can go. I'm envisioning spin-offs. Yeah, I love because that idea. That would be You could uh you could actually make love notes to the world piñatas. Mm. And so when you when you break the globe open instead of candy falling, it's just a shower of love notes that come oh, I, raining down. I love that idea. That would probably be easier to make too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you'll sell in the the pop up gift shop wherever the globe is being displayed. You see, right, right, exactly, exactly, and a print a printed book of all the love notes. Yes, the printed compendium. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I know you mentioned that it hasn't gone as quickly as you would have liked due to various factors in your life, et cetera. But mm -hmm. I, I would say that now is actually the perfect time these next few weeks to really 
revive this or bring this back into being because we're in a Venus retrograde. Oh, um, yes. And it's Venus retrograde in Aries, if you really wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but that's a great time for revisiting love or bringing back relationships. And so to me, this is that kind of thing, our relationship to the world, if you will. Yes. Um, yes. You know, so it's a, a great time for resurrecting uh, that uh, in full. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I think that, again, we see that bridge of art and magic because by having people contribute both yarn and love notes, they're feeding energy into, like you said, when you do art, there's a certain, it's a spell, you yeah. know, so they're feeding their energy and intention into this, which can then make it something more and something bigger than maybe just what one person doing it would actually accomplish. Right. I I agree. And that's definitely part of what my hope was for this, was that real pooling of resources, energetic resources, magical resources to to do this together. Um, And, you know, and letting people know that they're not alone, which is a powerful spell in itself. Um, There's a a biologist, actually, Rupert Sheldrake, who um, his some of his theories are kind of controversial, but he has this theory of morphic fields, um, which is often described as the hundredth monkey uh, analogy, where these monkeys that lived on these remote islands, um, monkeys on one island learned how to do a specific task, something about with their food that they you know, like they, a few, one monkey learned it and then it taught the other monkeys there and they learned it. And then it hit a certain point of collective knowledge. Um, spontaneously, other monkeys on other islands that had no contact with each other just started knowing how to do this thing. And the new babies that were born knew how to do the thing without being taught and that sort of thing. And he, he describes it as being a field of morphic resonance where this sort of it's the collective unconscious. It reaches, reaches a certain tipping point, and then that idea just spreads, and, and then everybody knows it. And I, I do feel, I believe in that, and I feel that, you know, part of my intention with this project was also sort of trying to create this morphic field of positivity, of love, and collaboration, and so that I feel like if we could just get enough people on board with this idea you know we just have to hit like whatever that tipping point is and i'm not really sure what that tipping point is but just like we can hit a tipping point and devolve i think we can hit a tipping point and evolve collectively um so that's part of the spell as well and it may be that there was divine intervention for slowing down the progress on this project because we may be reaching a tipping point where people are realizing this isn't something they just want, but they realize this is something that the world needs. I mean, right. could you, I, I realized a couple of years ago when you first got the idea and you felt you were seeing all of these negative articles and different things going on, could you have even imagined that it could get exponentially worse no, I must no, say I... <laughs> the way that it is now, when I think back right. to just a couple of years ago, um, you know, that it, it seems even more urgent now for this kind of project. 
I agree. I agree. It was something that at the time it seemed bad enough, but I had no idea. And um, it was not a direction I, you know, I, I really hoped we wouldn't have gone in the way that we have gone. But now that we're here, I do feel like we really need this more than ever. It feels especially timely and urgent. And I noticed that actually on my Facebook page, which I have not been very good about keeping updated um, in the last year, suddenly after the election here in the United States, um, the presidential election, that suddenly I got a more interest again without me doing anything new. I hadn't suddenly started posting again. I was feeling pretty discouraged, honestly. And so I wasn't really feeling like, yes, I love everybody. I, you know, I wasn't, I was feeling pretty grim, um, but other people started suddenly seeking it out. And so that told me that this is more relevant than ever. And, and maybe because also we can't, people in, in this country, in the United States, for example, we can't just keep looking at pointing our fingers or thinking it's them that needs this out in the world. Like, you know, that country or that culture or that region is right. really in a hateful situation or a, you know, violent situation because now we, we don't feel really any different than the rest of the world because we feel like we're seeing the same things happen here that mm -hmm. we always, you know, rightly or wrongly perceived as happening over there someplace. And so right. this this project kind of taps into we feel more a part of that world and therefore doing this, we feel like we need it and we need to be part of it just as much as anybody else rather than just something we need to send to someplace else. Right, exactly. And and I mean, although in my opinion, we've that's always been true, but now I think people are seeing that more clearly than before. I think that we definitely were able to have some, you know, a bit of a, a bubble of, you know, that that things were better. And it's not to say that it isn't better than in some places, you know, everything is relative. But I think that the sort of the creepy crawlies under the rocks are being revealed. It's not that they weren't there before. They're just being, although I actually like bugs, but, you know, <laughs> but they're being revealed in a way that uh, that they haven't been on such a large scale. And a lot of people are seeing things that they perhaps avoided looking at before um and and it's much harder to ignore um and and i also think that it's really important because as we're addressing all a lot of issues that have been around you know certainly these aren't actually new issues but they're really in the forefront now and they're really being revealed to a lot of people who chose not to see it before um, or, or just were blind to it, you know, um, oblivious, but now they're seeing things that are quite unpleasant um, and difficult, that there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of resentment and none of those things are unfounded. And also, still, we still need to find a way to move beyond that and work together if we're going to actually be successful. So I feel like any projects that help to bring people together to look beyond the differences and the old wounds or even current wounds to try to work together toward a greater common good. I think I encourage all of that. <laughs> well, and maybe this is that tipping point of the morphic field that, you know, finally reached the point of 
it's not just happening over there on some other mm-hmm. island, but all of a sudden it's almost like spontaneous <laughs> awakening. <laughs> and right. That, wait, it's here too. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you mentioned that there's a web, uh, I'm sorry, a, a Facebook page, but there's also a website for this love yes. notes to the world.com. Um, and Facebook, you just, I think it's the same name. They just look up love notes to the world. Uh, yes. so, um, how could people either contribute or participate to this project and what would you envision? I mean, maybe it's evolved in terms of how you would envision people contributing to this project after it being a couple of years since starting and having been, you know, progressing slowly that maybe things have developed for you in the way that they can do that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm still taking donations of yarn. Um, I would love if people wanted to send me yarn from wherever they are. It doesn't have to be fancy yarn. It doesn't have to be a particular color. Um, I'm not doing it. The the globe is not going to be natural earth colors. It's going to be whatever the yarn is because it reflects the diversity of who we actually are as a human family. Um, So it doesn't matter what color it is. Um, as I would love if somebody out there is also a magic worker, um, if they have their yarn that they used in some ritual or in some spell or something for, that was a positive energy, you know, if they wanted to send that charged yarn, then that's even better. But even if it's just the yarn that was your grandmother's that you inherited and you don't know what to do with, you could totally send it to me. Um, and also handwritten love notes would be wonderful. Um, I, it takes a lot of paper to stuff a globe that big. So I really especially need love notes. Um, and all of those things can be sent to me, Jennifer Wild, uh, care of the Sacred Well, which is the store that I work at. And um, the address is 536 Grand Avenue. Oakland, California, 94610. And so you can certainly send those things to me there. But I also would love, you know, if you don't have yarn or you don't have the resources to send something, you know, you don't have to um, send a physical thing if you go to the Facebook page or you could go to my website and send me a comment um, about it. You know, if you send a love note in the comments on my webpage or send I would love if people would post on the Facebook page their love notes to the world, and I will take all of those that are sent to me electronically and write them out physically and use them to stuff the globe as well. I would love to get love notes from everywhere. Um, my real dream is this for this to truly have a global reach because I think that it will be most effective if we can actually get some contribution from at least every continent. Um, I have a couple of international yarn donations, but mostly it's been in the U.S. And I really want the scope to be bigger than that. So and, and you know, if people just want to reach out also on the Facebook page, if people want to participate in creating a more positive, loving reality by sharing news of positive things, um, I'm open to that as well. It's like, you know, I've tried to do that. Like I said, I'm I'm not super good with keeping up with that aspect of social media, I'm afraid, but I'm trying. And so, you know, I have posted a few articles about people doing loving, positive things around the world. And so if somebody else wanted to do that, that would also be wonderful. And I'm assuming that the love notes can be written in any language. Any language. Yes, absolutely. I don't have to be able to read it. (laughs) (laughs) And I also think that the, the magical aspect too is 
people participating in this actually helps to start shifting their energy, mm-hmm. especially for people when they've been feeling very dissuaded or pessimistic um, or they're just, you know, they feel very tired mm-hmm. that, that even just engaging in something like this, just to write the note or just to send the yarn shifts their own energy and at least starts to help bring it back into a loving, a more loving space, um, both towards themselves as well as what's coming out of them. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I just wanted to mention also, if somebody has their own project that is along similar lines and that they want to do some sort of, you know, like we, we help each other, I'm open to that as well. I got a message actually through Facebook from a woman in uh, Chile who was wanting to send love notes to her her partner from all over the world. And she asked if I would help her by taking a picture out my window holding a note in Spanish and, you know, like about how much she loved him and then email her the picture so she could send it to him. And I I thought that was so delightful that of course I, I was happy to help her. We had a little bit, I was using Google translate. And so like it was a little, took us a little bit of back and forth for me to understand what she was actually asking me. But once we got to that, I was like, yes, I totally want to help you with this. And I'm sorry if my understanding is limited. Um, but it was great. And, and I think we both felt better about that. And then we created that. I'm happy to collaborate too with other artists or people in working in whatever area, you know, to try to help foster that greater energy of love. Uh, so I'll just we'll remind people again that the website is lovenotestotheworld.com. And on Facebook, they can just look up Love Notes to the World to find the Facebook page there. Yes. Um, so as we come to a, a close of our conversation, mm-hmm. um, what I do with each person that I speak with is I have a question to ask you that was posed by a previous guest. They didn't know who would be getting the question. Oh, okay. So I'm going to ask you their question and then I'm going to ask you for a question that I will then pose to a future guest. Oh, okay. This is, this is exciting. (laughs) (laughs) So the question I'm going to ask you from a previous guest is from Alita Lito, who is a feng shui master and Chinese astrologer. And the question is, if you can relate anything to your ancestral qualities or lineage, what story would you like to share that has been most impactful? Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting um, that I was just talking to a friend of mine about this. My story is when I was little, my mom studied Zen Buddhism. Uh, She was raised Jewish, sort of, not really super practicing, uh, but she didn't select that as her personal spiritual path. She didn't resonate with that, and she studied Zen Buddhism. And from the time I was very young, she used to tell me, she used to describe what it meant to be a bodhisattva to me, which was that you you are an enlightened being, but you don't choose to ascend. You stay on the wheel of samsara. In fact, she described it as having one foot on the ladder and one foot on the wheel, and that it is your role to guide others up the ladder until they until everyone is enlightened, and then the bodhisattvas will uh, will also you know transcend. 
And she felt that that was her calling. I mean, not that she necessarily thought she was supremely enlightened already, but that her role was to help guide others up that ladder as best as possible, that that was the highest calling she could envision for herself and that it was something that we all needed, the world needed. And so that was really powerful. It made a big impact on me. I was very young when she started introducing this idea. And, and it was something that she taught me to believe also was the most valuable role that I could hold. And so everything that I do now is sort of in service to that goal. And what question would you like to pose for a future guest? Okay, that's harder because now I have to think of something interesting. <laughs> um, I would say, okay, my question is, what are places that you can identify in your life where you can choose love instead of anger or hatred or resentment or fear? And it doesn't mean that you don't feel any of those things, but you choose to act from a place of love. Can you, where are the places that you can identify that you could act from love instead of one of those other sort of reactive emotional places? And, and how can you share that and spread kindness? Excellent question. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to extend a thousand gratitudes to you for having been willing to take some time to join us here. And I will, I dare say I love your idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It was a great pleasure to be talking to you about this. And we'll just remind people again that your, your website isn't just for the Love Notes to the World project. It also has samples of your artwork and an ability to be able to contact you if people wanted to say commission something from you or ask additional oh, yes. questions um certainly but all of that can be found on lovenotestotheworld.com yes uh and also on facebook just do a quick search for the love notes to the world um and the the page will come right up for that on facebook is there That's any right. other additional information about you contact wise or offerings event wise that you would like to add? Oh, well, um, I mean, as part of my high priestess work with the mothers of the new time, we as a group will be presenting at the goddess conference in Glastonbury this summer in, in August. So, you know, if you happen to be able to go to that, maybe I'll see you there. And, um, and also, uh, I mean, I'm hoping in the near future to have some, actually some herbalism courses and maybe some other things like that on um, Themis Academy, which is a um, an online learning uh, site, you know, where people can get either do-it-yourself sorts of classes or there are also video classes and that sort of thing. So um, you may find me there soon. I'm working on my lessons for that. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Jenny Wild. And Thank you. I wish you a day full of love. Thank you. And to you also, I wish that for you. And to everyone listening, stay tuned. Coming up is going to be your chance to get a reading live on the air during the show. You can connect in from the show page or call 646-716-5510 in order to get into the queue for that. So stay tuned. You're listening to Revolution with High C, and we will be right back. Hey, oh.
You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Welcome to Living Well with Linda, presented by Linda Wiley. Linda Wiley is a certified chef, food therapist, Reiki master, and student of the healing arts. Linda has dabbled in many areas of life, giving her the wisdom and experience that allows her to offer healing perspectives as we face life's challenges. She has had a restaurant, a catering company, created beautiful delis, and done healing work around and with food for the past 25 years. She has always had and continues to cultivate in Eugene, Oregon, where she currently resides, an organic garden with medicinal and savory herbs, edible flowers, and all manner of fruits and vegetables. Linda enlivens the body, mind, and soul through her focus and use of local, seasonal, and organic food. So please enjoy this episode of Living Well with Linda, Offered to you by Linda Wiley. Hello and welcome. Linda Wiley here with Living Well with Linda, your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's really about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well within our changing world. There's a quote by Hippocrates that I especially like, and it'll kind of be the flavor, the underlying thread or theme that runs through our monthly chats. He says, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. I also say the same thing. So today I would like to chat a bit about what something I call food philosophy. Since we are in between the seasons, I thought this was a good time to get us energized for the coming year with perhaps some new understandings of food and life and how it all connects. Though spring is in the air, for most of us it's still cold and all the winter truths still like to be honored and applied. Like being cozy by the fire, reading, resting as much as possible, and using our warming herbs and spices, like curries and ginger, garlic, onions, cinnamon, and cloves. A baked winter squash covered in curry sauce is delicious and warming and comforting, served with steamed greens, onions, and garlic, and quinoa. It's a yummy meal. All food has different energetic qualities. Some are warming, some are cooling, drying, moistening, bitter, sweet, and salty. The best meals incorporate all the flavors in an artful and creative way. Understanding the energetics of food can also facilitate a deeper healing. It's about balance and keeping all the parts of the engine running smoothly. In each season, we eat differently because nature offers us what is needed for our body in each season. So if we follow the seasons, there really is no guessing anymore. Nature provides. As we learn to see this way, 
It's fun to honor life and eat within the limited but real range with the real types of food that are available to us seasonally. For instance, in winter we do not eat tomatoes unless they grow in our local area. In winter we eat the food that we put up during our summer growing season, or else what we can get that is as local as possible, what is perhaps in our greenhouse or covered rows or root cellars. Some veggies actually winter over well, and it's a really fun creative project to create a winter garden. Heck, you know, in the old days, you did not most likely have fresh red bell peppers and tomatoes for dinner. And why would you? Those are foods to eat in the middle of summer, not the middle of winter. So you see, Mother Nature really does offer all we need in each season to sustain us. We just need to remember that wisdom, pay attention to it, and apply it. As with all of life, it's in the application. I have been a student of the art of life, of cooking and food for many years. I have dived deep looking into what is the truth of food. It seems that everything is energy and vibration, so that would mean everything. Everything, like rocks, trees, computers, clouds, cars, and on it goes. Plants, veggies, fruits, all vibration, light, and energy. What do we think of as spirit? Energy, vibration, the play of dark and light. And let us not forget us and our beautiful molecular vehicles that we call the body. Yes, we are also this pervasive energy and vibration and light. So it is when we take to partake of food that it is really way past proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. It is about taking in that essence of life, which is light and vibration, and feeding our bodies with that. This is what the body needs to function at its best, most optimum. And that looks like clean, organic, local, seasonal foods. These types of food heal and keep the body open and connected to the earth and all of life. Honoring the seasonality of life is something that has often been glossed over in today's busy world. Yet our bodies go through the changes as the earth does, whether or not we know it. And how could it not? For we are the earth and the earth is us. When we eat clean, good food, our bodies and minds function as they should and the channels between heart and mind stay open and we grow and learn and there is a clarity within. When we eat processed, unconscious, unhealthy food filled with GMOs, preservatives, additives, artificial flavors and colors, we disrupt the electromagnetic workings of the body and it keeps consciousness at bay. And we are more apt to fall asleep, become unconscious followers of the program, sick, unhealthy, unable to care for ourselves, not able to think right or connect the dots, disconnected from the earth. It's not a pretty picture, but it is a realistic one, and sadly so. I realize that's a mouthful, but there is no denying food makes a huge difference and has a huge impact upon our bodies and minds. Because the other part of the truth about food is that eating is actually the act of taking spirit and putting it into our bodies. This is what nourishes and gives life and health. This is why food is so important. Food that is simple, straightforward, raw as much as possible, lightly steamed or cooked to retain all the colors of life and the life force vitality, electromagnetically enlivening the brain and body, and eaten simply in appreciation. Yes, this is the understanding. 
This helps take away the food issues of our time as it puts us forward into right relationship with ourselves, our surroundings, the seasons, the local energy, the local food. This is a critical understanding for food freedom and food freedom is front and center. Growing our own food ensures the best that we can get. As we become aware of the toxicity of most modern food and take back our responsibility for our health and well-being of body, mind, and soul, we will find and feel many great rewards. One will be that we are consciously no longer supporting all that is life-threatening. As we step forward in non-compliance with a deeper understanding that makes us want to do so, we start to change the world. Yet we must relearn how to live off the land again and be in harmony with our environments. It's hard work. Yes, it is. We have become lazy and sleepy to what is really going on around us and what has happened to our world in the meantime. But times, they are changing. The veil is thin. And for those with courage, it's easy to pierce. This understanding of life and food and clean water is so important. It's critical to our well-being and crucial for all of life. This is all part of our way forward out of the mess we find ourselves within by remembering what matters most. If white man had followed native ways, there would be clean air, food, and water for all. I think it's time to rethink things, and deeply so, and that time would be now. As spring comes closer, we can look forward to sprouts and tender greens being added back into the diet, and lots of them. Start now. Spring is a time of liver and cleansing, and liver loves green food. It's a good idea to think of doing a liver flush, perhaps a round of colonics, simple fastings, for a day or, or a few days, making green juices, adding greens to our juice combos. We will speak more of this next time. But for now, as we look around, see that the earth is starting to come alive again, to awaken from her slumber and rest, and to see that now the time of rejuvenation begins. The tender little sprouts push upward through the soil to the sun. We want to partake of their vibrance and strength to get life going again, or as our own selves to sprout forward out of our slumber once again and be rejuvenated. As within, so without. Try to feel the connection within and honor the new possibilities of life sprouting forth and stirring once again. These tender little sprouts need love and care and attention. As within, so without. And so it is, another cycle begins. Until next time, be well, take care, and do enjoy. My recommendation of the month. For those more interested in finding out about GMOs and food freedom, check out these DVDs easily found on Amazon.com or Netflix. Genetic Roulette, Food Inc., and Food Matters. Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, I welcome that. Please contact me at Linda at Prestia, P-R-E-S like Sam, T like Tom, I-A dot com. 
You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. We hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with high C. Please join us next time for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. This is Deb Caracella. Thank you for joining us.